podcast is brought to you by CEW Plus at the University of Michigan in Ann Arbor as we work to serve our community during this unprecedented time of change. Resiliency is best demonstrated in times of challenges. Join CEW Plus Director Tiffany Mara as she talks to students, staff, faculty, and community members connected to the University of Michigan's Center for the Education of Women Plus in our podcast, Strength in the Midst of Change. So to tell you a little bit about myself, my name is Tiffany Marr and I'm the director at uh, the Center for the Education of Women. One of my passions has been to capture stories of strength at U of M so that they can inspire others. I've also found storytelling to be a powerful tool to highlight unique ways in which individuals demonstrate their strength. So this podcast is a continuation of that work and I'm very grateful that you're willing to speak to me about your experiences. Would you mind starting by just introducing yourself and your relationship to CEW? So I'm Dr. Alvin Thomas. I'm an assistant professor in the School of Human Ecology in the Department of Human Development and Family Studies at the University of Wisconsin-Madison. I was a CEW fellow some many years ago. I want to say 2010. I have the distinct privilege and the wonderful opportunity of being the first male-identifying individual to be awarded a scholarship by CEW, and I remain continually humbled that they looked at me and considered my application, considered me worthy to be invested in, and I thank them every day for that. Yeah, that's great. It's, you know, it's a complete honor to be the director of the center where we're able to provide support to students. You know, I, I see that as like the greatest type of job ever, being able to provide financial support so students can reach their academic goals. How did you end up at U of M? So I was I was a teacher in the Caribbean. So I'm originally from very beautiful island of Saint Lucia in the Eastern Caribbean, mm-hmm. 238 square miles, um, just tropical paradise. Uh, taught there for about nine years at the elementary, middle, and high school level, and then eventually moved over to Morehouse College for an undergrad degree where I was going to study psychology in French. And I decided that I wanted to be a psychologist eventually and eventually got into the clinical psychology area at the University of Michigan, where I did my grad degree as well as a a two-year postdoc in the Depression Center. What made you decide to focus on community and specifically health disparities for men of color? I think, one, it's the background in in teaching. So I think I, I do remember the number of kids who I taught in middle school and high school and and elementary school who were having all kinds of challenges, social challenges, mental health challenges, and other challenges. And it was great teaching English language, teaching all these different subjects that I taught. It was great to do that. But I thought anybody could do that or somebody else could do that. Nobody seems to be focusing on these other challenges that kids are bringing into the mix. And if what if we could address some of these challenges and help kids overcome them, then they'll probably be even better disposed to actually doing the work of learning, to actually doing the work of exploring that children are supposed to be doing. So I eventually moved after a ton of, I I can't go into all of the significant challenges, applying to more than 50 schools and all that kind of stuff with parents who were not able to financially support me, but had their heart and soul poured out to me and talked about how they prayed for me every day. 
um, that was the extent of their, their, their ability to support. So I finally did get a scholarship and went over to Morehouse College. While I was there, I kind of got a, a better appreciation for the African-American experience. I had understood the Black experience in the Caribbean, which is kind of very different. So as I was exploring that African-American experience, again, the, the idea of children having these hurdles to overcome became even more important. And when I finally started my graduate program, I met Cleopatra Caldwell, who was uh, involved in, who was pretty much the originator of the Fathers and Sons program. And I thought that is what I want to do. I want to work on youth violence. I started doing that work with Laura Cohen Wood, who is now at the University of Miami. And I thought, how do we make that transition between working with African-American boys who are at significant risk just by living in America, but how do we make that transition to what's happening with fathers? How do we bring those two pieces together? And Cleopatra Caldwell's work on reintegrating non-resident African-American fathers back into the lives of their sons in these really positive and meaningful, life-changing ways gave me that spark. And I thought, that's where my work is. It's in fathers and sons and in specifically highlighting the role of fathers, but also focusing on the positive development of African-American boys. Yeah, that's critical work. You mentioned briefly how you noticed differences between how Caribbean black boys were being raised and the challenges that they faced versus African-American boys in the U.S. Would you mind extrapolating on that a bit? So I think just just from my own experience, I think that one of the big difference one of the big differences is that with regard to Caribbean boys, you 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 have that that uh, difference in historical perspectives. So there's not that continual feeling of oppression as far as racial oppression. I think what we see more in the Caribbean, Caribbean would be the socioeconomic oppression. So you often hear, and I remember hearing it as a child, that the thing that kind of pulls you out of poverty, pulls you out of wherever you are, is education. And that possibility of social mobility through education is preached continually. African-Americans, I think that's a little bit different. There is the push for social mobility through education, but I think there's also that overt and very obvious and in-your-face exercise of racism and discrimination, both personal and institutional, that has to be overcome as well. Not that in the Caribbean those don't exist. I think they exist in very different ways. So, for example, I know that colorism, uh, as a form of white supremacy or as a form of discrimination also exists in the Caribbean, but it also does exist in the U.S. as well. There's always, to me, that uh, thin dis discrepancy between the experiences of African-Americans versus Caribbean Blacks. Mm -hmm. yeah, that makes sense. Now, I believe you were at Palo Alto University, and then you recently joined Madison, Wisconsin. What drew you to those two different universities to invest your time and efforts with those groups? I think for, for Palo Alto University, I was looking for that first, that first appointment after my postdoc. I wanted a difference. I had been in, in Michigan for a while. I had grown really wary of winter, and I wanted <laughs> something a little bit more, more true to form to what I had grown up with. And I moved to Palo Alto 
to start some of that work that I wanted to do as well, that work on exploring positive development among African-Americans. I, I tried to, to make some of that those connections across the Bay in Oakland. And I had just started making some of those connections when the position over at Wisconsin-Madison became available. I think Madison's, although it was although it was not a position in the clinical psychology department or in the psychology department for, in, in a more, much broader sphere, that was not as in, as important to me as the specific focus. The focus of the call was for somebody who does work or wanted to do work on fatherhood, somebody who wanted to do work with families and with kids. And it also had a very, something that, that has always been really meaningful to me is to be able to work with communities beyond just, beyond just doing the research, but actually seeing the research have tangible, palpable uh, effects on people, on families, on lives. And University of Wisconsin-Madison, the School of Human Ecology, seemed to present that in a very compelling way. And having spoken to a number of the, of what are now my current colleagues, I got that feel that that was exactly what they were, they were after. And it seemed to match really, really well to what I wanted. Yeah, it sounds like the position was written for you. I'm like, you're a perfect it's fit not, for it. It sounds yeah. like it was. <laughs> How long have you been in Wisconsin? I've been in Wisconsin less than a year. So I've been there, I want to say, since early August, I want to see. Uh, so you're new to the community, new to the campus. How did that, like in this period, I'd imagine community relationships are really important and building those trusting partnerships normally take a while. How did you build trusting partnerships with organizations so that you could carry forward your work? That, that, so I think even before I got here, I was getting calls and people were saying, we look forward to you coming in and there's lots of work to be done. And so I, I knew, I got the sense that there was a bit of urgency with regard to work that needed to be done in Madison, but also that there was a lot of interest in doing the work. So I think the, the, to me, the, the, the difference between urgency and interest doesn't often overlap or there's not usually an overlap between urgency and interest. In this case, there seemed to be a really good overlap between urgency and interest. And so when I came in, my chair, Janine Dilworth Bart, mentioned a number of people who she thought I would be well informed to connect with. And so I tried to connect with as many of these people and others who also connected with me directly and said, we're do here are some things that are going on in Madison. Here are some things that we're working on. And almost not, yeah, al almost by, by, by happenstance, I seemed to meet a few of them in succession. And there was really good synergy. I know, for example, when I met Mr. Aaron Perry from Rebalance Wellness Life, we just seemed to almost lock eyes and knew when we were talking that we could almost finish each other's sentences because we had the same general ideas. We had the same general thrust as far as the concern around mental health of black men and boys and what needs to happen. We both seem to understand the urgency for it. And then I met with people like uh, Dr. Logan Perry. I met with Leotha Stanley and some other, other individuals who have been in the trenches for a while doing this work and were saying, we welcome you, brother, because we need help with this work. We want you to come join us in this work. And I, I rolled up my sleeves and said, 
let's get digging. Let's get this done. You mentioned an interesting word, which is happen chance. Just in speaking with you for this small amount of time, I can tell that you're very intentional, that you're very passionate about your work, that you care deeply about anti-racism work related to boys and men of color. I'm guessing you're understating your intentionality when you say happen chance. When you think about how you go into a new relationship with these community organizations, Myself in work with community, it's often there's often a build up period of building the trust because of university's history working with community. Could you describe a little bit about what is what are the intentional steps you take to ensure that there's trust established as you enter into a new relationship? It's a very good question. So I, I think as a clinical psychologist, that, that really helps. That training really helps to go in and be able to have a, a really good understanding of who people are, even before you've met them, even when you finally put eyes on them. I would say also as a career educator, having dealt with many hundreds of children and many hundreds of parents and others, you you get a little bit of a knack of being able to identify people who are willing and able to work and want to put their shoulder to the wheel. And so I think that's usually the first thing that I look for. Um, I look to see what people have done before. A, a, a really good predictor of future behavior is past behavior. Not that it is the only predictor, but it is a very, very good predictor of future behavior. Um, in the conversations with people, I want to hear the things that come up repeatedly. So what are some of the themes that keep coming up? What are some of the underlying threads of conversation that seem to permeate every interaction you've had with them or you have with them? What's the common thread that you hear when other people tell you about them? And that gives you some insight into who this person is at heart. And so I think tooled or having these two pieces present uh, gives you a really good starting point from which you can start having conversations with, with the individual and then start exploring how the two of you either fit or don't fit and how snugly that fit is. So usually I'm looking for persons who are not just interested in the things that are interesting to me, but persons who are committed to the things that I'm committed to. So looking for more than just peripheral interests or peripheral connections, um, because that, that's a waste of the individual's time. It's also a waste of my time. It's also even more importantly, a waste of the community's time. If the two of us are continually trying hard to figure out if we can work together or if we believe the same things. I think there, there has to be some commonality across two individuals that start that becomes the the launching pad for anything going forward, and that I think I've been able to find with, with, with some of the community partners, and some I have not been able to find that with, and, that, and that's fine. It just means that they have to do other things that I may not be able to help with, and, and I'll, that I might have to do some other things that they may not necessarily be in the realm to explore that work, and that's fine. We all can't be doing everything. It sounds like your use of the intentional no is very strong in trying to identify the places that you can best support and match the needs of the organization as well as being able to support them in ways that make sense to them. You know, Have you noticed any ways that your work has shifted as a result of the pandemic? 
we're moving to a lot more online research. I have not been in this open space as far as constant contact with the community like this before until now. So for example, the Saturday workshops that we do puts me in a space where I have to one, prepare myself, but two, be ready and willing to interact with the community with whatever they bring and being able to do so empathetically, but also in a way that provides good information, but provides some kind of relief for persons who may be coming overwhelmed and overburdened. And that direct contact is what I've always wanted to, to, to have. And so being able to have that now is really meaningful, but also being able to, to, to kind of expand the work that way is going to be interesting as I see what happens or look forward to what happens uh, beyond COVID-19. No, is you know we've seen a rise in people wanting to become advocates and wanting to to help break down systemic racism, and I think you know right now there's a lot of tension around the word ally, with yeah. the perspective being that it's an othering term that allows people to opt into a situation, much like um, I don't know if you read the book, but Black Like Me, where a person's able to enter into a community and feel like it's a real thing and that they're really helping when really they're still in power and control in a way that those they're serving cannot. In what ways do you think right now in this time people can best serve as in the anti-racism movement? I think eventually these protests will stop and we are going to look back at these this time of protest and we hopefully will be able to see here are some measurable changes and here are some changes that are so obvious that we can see them. We can see how people's lives have been bettered because of these protests, because of speaking out, because of all of these wonderful things that are happening now. Wonderful but difficult things that are happening now. I think more important or maybe just as important as those things is that each individual should be able to sit back or should be working at this point so that when this is done, they can sit back and look introspect and say, here are ways that I have changed. In other words, there needs to we can do all of this systemic work, but the systems are also made of and policed by individuals. And that individual change has to be prioritized or has to be given just as much attention as the public outcry and the protesting. So people need to sit back in their quiet times and reflect and ask themselves in what ways, and this is beyond guilt, this is not about guilt, asking themselves in what ways am I acting to destroy another individual, even when I don't intend to act that way? In what ways am I supporting policies and actions and belief systems that undermine the humanity of other individuals? Just today, I was, I was reading one of these neighborhood blogs that goes around, and somebody was talking about hearing this loud screaming in their neighborhood. And I was very pleased that across the 20 or 30 responses, nobody talked about going out and calling the police. 
people talked about how to go in and figure out who the neighbor is and trying to find out what might be the potential explanation for this. And people were able to point to so many potential explanations and then also able to identify from among themselves who are the community resources who might be best able to provide further information to help clarify the situation. And then they talked about in the last or the last ditch scenario, if we found out that this is actually something nefarious or something dangerous, here is how we go about doing it. And I think that's what's necessary going forward, that people need to be able to look in and move beyond their automatic responses and thoughts and actually start thinking about other individuals as human first, and thinking about how they may be contributing to dehumanizing others. That was an excellent challenge for those who are listening. I think in that last example you just provided, it also requires those who have trusted the police as an agency of support and service to look past that and see how in certain communities that that trust doesn't exist and the treatment Mm -hmm. isn't fair. And I think that's the challenge is being able to take off our normal everyday lens and to Mm -hmm. be able to see it differently and more clearly and vividly than how we have believed in the past, um, which I think is difficult for people to kind of see their own bias and then to change Mm -hmm. their behavior, as you just described in that example. What types of questions might you pose to individuals to think about? You mentioned that the introspection, the carefully investigating oneself, and then also being able to look back and ask, how have I acted? What have Mm -hmm. I changed? And how have my thoughts changed? What other types of questions might you suggest people reflect on in this period? Um, Because I completely agree that if we don't start with self, you know, there's, there won't be any change. Something I've heard people talk about quite a bit is the idea of white privilege. And I've heard, I've heard and seen quite a bit of hand-wringing around either a cognitive awareness or a, an emotional awareness or a deep-centered awareness of privilege. And I think those mean very different things. Some people just say, oh, yeah, I, I understand why privilege exists, and that's the end of it. And some people will say, I am racked by guilt because I understand that I benefit from white privilege. And that's great, but that's also very limited. And then other people go the extent and saying, I recognize that I have benefited from white privilege. I recognize that I continue to benefit from white privilege. And I choose to act in these ways that that actually use my white privilege in a way that helps other people. And that, I think, is the step. Where, so much in, the, much in the same way uh, we talk about the five stages of grief, which necessarily don't all, always happen in stages, uh, I think we can think about this in the same way as well, that there are stages uh, to this development. And some people are currently at the awareness stage. Like, oh, my God, I can't believe these things are happening. And other people are thinking, no, they've been happening for all of my life. I don't know why, why you're only now seeing it. And that's just that, that some people have not been able to see it for one reason or another. Of course, you have some people who choose never to see it. So nope, doesn't exist, will never exist no matter what you're seeing. And that's fine. That's where they are at this point. Uh, eventually, we hope that they will eventually come to see the full humanity of all individuals. And once they embrace that, they suddenly begin to recognize how these things are affecting other people in very dangerous and difficult ways. But 
asking ourselves, what can I do? And then not allowing ourselves to suddenly be crippled by that question. What can I do? There are things, there's always something you could do. And will you act foolishly sometimes in trying to do the right thing? Very possible. Should that stop you from doing the right thing? No. You continue trying. So I've, I've said to people, sometimes doing the right thing just might be being kind and neighborly, not jumping to your, not acting on your automatic thought when it comes, actually seeking to understand. So diversifying your media buffet, not getting all of your media from one source, getting your media from multiple sources. What that does is that it gives you different perspectives and allows you forces your brain to start to start thinking about the possibility that there are other ways to think beyond what you know and what you've always accepted. So I think these are some very small but also powerful ways of changing self. Then, of course, comes the even bigger ones. How am I going to use my privilege to support and drive this movement that recognizes the humanity of all individuals. Well, you have meetings that you attend, you have council meetings, you have voting, you have um, uh, the census, you have donating, you have community action groups, you have volunteering, you have neighborhood committees that support individuals. There, there are all of these ways that we can step out and in very obvious ways say that we are connected with a thing that is bigger than us. I think a few weeks ago when I first saw these protests starting, I remember talking about this in one of my Saturday programs, I was literally brought to tears. I stood on the street and watched this massive crowd snaking its way through the streets. And I stood there for about three or more minutes and watched as this crowd continued to move through the streets. And the longer I watched, the more this thick, packed crowd continued to snake its way through the streets. And in that crowd were so many colors and faces. And because it was Madison, there were so many white faces in that crowd, young and old babies and people who were wearing their masks. And so it told me that these people knew the risk that they were putting themselves at or through because they were wearing these masks to reduce the risk, but they were literally deciding to put their bodies on the line for me. And I wept because I saw the weight and felt the weight of that support. It felt like a million hands had touched me at the same time. And I have never not appreciated these protests since then. I understand the negative elements that have tried to use the protest in other ways. But in general, when you look at the protests, even today, the protests are continuing. The persons who've been following because of fashion have fallen away. A lot of the, 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 the negative ones have fallen away. And we see the core of the protests remain the peaceful ones who are out there making a stance, who are saying things must change, they remain. Yeah. Why Why now? Um, what is the 
cumulative effect of this time point in history that's bringing people together in this way that you've described? It, it's really interesting. I think, I want to think that COVID-19, as horrible as it is and continues to be, played a very crucial role. I think, of course, that is not to undermine the the effects and imp- the continued impact of the deaths of George Floyd and Breonna Taylor and Armand Arbery and others who've been killed around the same time and since, because it's still happening. But I think being cooped up, that pent-up energy and a need to find a place to put that energy meant that people had energy to use and they needed somewhere to use it. The COVID virus also made people think more clearly about others. I'm not saying that it did it for everybody, but for a lot of us, it forced us to think about how our actions were affecting the lives of others. And so I think a combination of the pent-up energy around COVID and the social isolation, the switch in our mindsets of being of having to curtail our actions or to train our actions in a way that benefits other people and the very unfortunate, untimely, and horrible deaths or continued deaths of Black people, those three came together and caused a stir, such a stir in the hearts and minds of many Americans that it eventually caused a similar stir in the hearts and minds of people across the globe. And I think we're going to continue to see that stir until that group, that massive group that has begun, finds that there's sufficient response to the collective humanity that has been long ignored in our country and around the world. Would you talk about how all of us have kind of our eyes have been opened greater to the challenges and particular communities disproportionately by race, but I think it's also, you know, very interconnected to the systemic racism, to how that has impacted schooling, SES levels, um, healthcare, across the board, it's a systemic challenge. Have you seen any changes in your own thinking or how your language has shifted in the last five months? I'm not sure if I have, of course, because I'm socially isolating I'm not getting a lot, as much um, contact with other individuals who would who I can then have some of these con- these conversations with these vulnerable conversations with. I think it's it's good to do the introspection, but I've always said that introspection means nothing because it is you looking at yourself in a mirror. There's still the bias of your own gaze, and so what's even more important is having somebody else look at you, look at your actions, and give you feedback. And I think I'd be I'd be happy to sit with somebody who a friend who could give me some honest feedback about what they see as different about how i think and how i act um i think if anything uh, these current uh situations have made me even more aware most recent events in madison and across the country make me more aware about how perilous life for black persons in america 
how perilous that life, that existence can be, how dangerous it is to walk around in your black skin. But it's also helped me recognize, I think I've talked about in the past, I've told people in the past, to focus on the many who may be silent and supporting you rather than focusing on the few, the vocal few who are drowning out all conversation. And I think this current uh, response has made me even more aware of the silent majority who have been out here supporting this. And so now they are not so silent. And so it's a lot easier to see where some of this support is. Uh, and I'm looking forward to seeing more of the silent majority stepping forward in all kinds of ways, whether it be in voting, whether it be in, uh, in mobilizing, in volunteering, in loving other people, in supporting communities, in building, in whatever ways. I'm looking forward to seeing more and more of these groups, this group of people stepping forward uh, in, in, in a way to contribute to making both our lives and our country a significantly better place, a better union. You mentioned um, that introspection is the first step, but then really verbalizing it and getting feedback from others is is key to the next step. Have you seen or been a part of a space where that allowed people to be vulnerable, where they could bring their introspection out and able to put themselves out there in a very safe space? Yeah. So I know at the University of Wisconsin, we have affinity groups. So we have a black affinity group that I, that I uh, sat in with. And I do remember sitting in on that group, not wanting to go in and eventually deciding with a colleague to go in and sit in. And I thought, I think a lot of people probably also think like me, that when you go into these groups, there's just so much emotion and hurt and anxiety and feelings of being overwhelmed and burdened and burnt out that you're experiencing in your life as an academic and as a black academic, that you think that when you go into that space, it's just going to be more of carrying that work again. And I was just so pleasantly surprised at how healing it was, uh, that it just felt like a wash of emotions. One, to know that there are other people who are feeling exactly like you. Two, to see, especially senior colleagues, just be so vulnerable and create space for you to be vulnerable and to have your vulnerability accepted, normalized, and supported was just really, really useful. I've not found that outside of that affinity group. I do have friends that I speak to every every now, now and then, but then I, I, you, you kind of have to uh, measure when... When are some of these conversations uh, just you carrying more load, carrying more burden, or helping somebody else carry load or burden? Not that there's anything wrong with that. Uh, and when you need to have somebody help you carry your own burdens or, or lighten your load. And so I think there's a really tricky balance trying to figure out when and where these two things are happening, both of which are necessary. Especially now as a lot of people are turning to people of color for answers. Um, exactly. The burden gets heavier. <laughs> Before, it may have been people of color seeking support from people of color, but now there's this mass of people looking towards people of color for answers. I'm in a time yeah. when they're most vulnerable. 
Yeah, uh, and I, I we think like myself, I think a lot of people of color are saying we are we we are happy to help. We are more than happy to help. But if you're going to ask us to do this heavy lifting, then that heavy lifting should be appreciated. And a box load of thank yous goes nowhere. Mm-hmm. We, we we need to see tangible show of appreciation for the work that's being done. Asking faculty of color to take on additional responsibilities around these issues is fine, but then you have to start talking about, well, what does that look like for tenure? What does that look like for your pay? What does that look like for remuneration? What does that look like for a number of different things? Asking faculty of color to do webinars and seminars and whatever else it is, what does that look like for them? Because it is taking on additional work, taking on additional effort and that effort has to be rewarded i think myself and other black folk would tell you it's great to be asked to meet with black students which we will do anyway Uh, it's great to be asked to join these discussions around a million different things but we're still looking to see where the hiring is done we're still looking to see where the black faculty show up uh in the higher levels of leadership, the spaces where it really counts. And so we're hoping that this is, and this is not just for black faculty, but just in, in general in black sp- in spaces where people want to see diversity. We're hoping that all of the wonderful comments that we've seen from business places and sports owners and whatnot, we're hoping that these turn out to be more than just cosmetic pretty language that it actually turns out to be significant change that is measurable and continues beyond this in policy and other ways. Yeah, I saw a great example of exactly what you're talking about a few weeks ago on Juneteenth. The Women of Color Task Force, which is at CEW, they hosted an amazing forum uh, for people to share their perspectives about allyhood, about police brutality, about COVID and the health response needed in different communities. And the people who were presenting, they made themselves so vulnerable. You could tell that their participation, they gave every emotional aspect of vulnerability over to the participants who attended. And mm-hmm. what I hope from that is that that it's not just them being vulnerable, but people can see their vulnerability and authenticity that they brought to that event mm-hmm. and model mm-hmm. it themselves and learn from it and not just absorb their vulnerability as a learning experiment, but instead take what they saw as authentic and now share that same authenticity back. And, you know, that to me makes it worthwhile to become vulnerable, to become authentic, but it's when you don't see it in return that it becomes really painful. Exactly. I think we've seen so many statements Statements that are read out by actors, statements that are read read out by people doing voiceovers, statements that are written. What we're looking for is a face and a life to connect to these statements. And often we are not seeing that face or not seeing that life. Now, I've been trying to end every podcast on a lighter note because we're covering pretty heavy topics here. You know, you're doing amazing things for the community you just joined, which is incredible that you've built up those relationships so fast. You know, you're working within the system of Madison. You're working with the community, providing support even through by doing podcasts like this and other, you know, uh, presentations that you've done over the past few months. Um, how are you taking care of yourself? 
So most recently, I've been posting, I love food, but I also love healthy food, or I, I want to love healthy food. <laughs> um, I have that challenge, I still, too. <laughs> I still, I still uh, walk to the supermarket and look lovingly at the ice cream and the cake and everything else. But I, I say to myself, no, 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 you can't have it this time. Maybe some other time, maybe next month or something like that. But I recently started a patio garden, which is just really, really a wonderful escape for me every now and then from the apartment where I can step out and watch my lettuce and my zucchini and cucumbers and tomatoes and then, of course, some flowers and herbs grow every day and reconnect, kind of close my eyes to the rest of the world and just connect with the plants, the life, the nature in these very small ways, and then, of course, be able to eat from it, being able to create meals that make me happy to watch and happy to eat, and then sharing those with friends, uh, with the world. People have been commenting about how much they love the pictures of the meals and the plates that I create. So I, I really love that. I'm also working on a, another project. It's more artistic. So it's more of my artistic side. Um, and that project I'm, I'm, I'm hoping is going to be released probably over Facebook and Twitter, probably if not next week, sometime early in the, in the subsequent week. So people can look out for that. But th those are the two ways that, that I've been kind of really taking care of myself, connecting with friends and through my little party, patio garden and, of course, um, trying to do some artist poetry and otherwise. Now, many of us are binge watching or binge reading, binge listening oh, wow. to different things. Have you found yourself getting very engaged in any type of media? I have binged almost everything. I think I have not watched Netflix. I had not watched Netflix for a long time until last Friday when I watched Five Bloods. I think I may have watched everything on Netflix or at least in my mind, everything that, that was worthy of watching. I, I definitely am a, a, a binge watcher. Yeah, if you had to what, recommend one Netflix show, what would it be? Oh, that is that is probably the most difficult question you've asked for the entire. <laughs> okay, <time>. that's funny. <laughs> if you if you really want a good distraction that is just so brilliantly done, and is also interesting, and has a lot of episodes to consume you for months backlist that would do it blacklist would hold you for months but yeah there, there's some really really great ones on there though all right i'll have to check out blacklist i've watched many many netflix shows at this point and i haven't touched that one yet so that'll be next on oh, our list really. have you ever watched raising dion no uh-uh oh no 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 okay i, I will put raising raising dion doesn't have as many is it a series yeah, doesn't have many many episodes, but I really loved Raising Dion because I think it gives a really positive spin of what's going on currently. I mean, it's nothing connected to what's going on currently, but it has applications and gives a really positive spin to the lives of black boys and how parents can support. Oh, it's just, yeah, it's brilliant. I, I think, yeah. In fact, I might watch it again. No, it, right. is, it is great. All right, that just bumped over Blacklist. I'll make sure. Oh, yeah. I, would, I, I would say do that over Blacklist. Okay. Easy. Yeah. All right. Now, for final question, do you have any final thoughts or inspirational words or quote you'd like to share with people who are listening? So I'll say this, that 
black people have been crying out for a long, long time. Not just black people, poor people, people with different, multiple different identities have been crying out for a very long time. George Floyd's death highlighted the inhumanity of man towards other men, the inhumanity of human beings, I want to, I should probably say more inclusively, to other human beings. And I'll say this, this is the quote, George Floyd spoke too, and no one listened. He cried, and no one responded. Black people are crying out, and America is not listening and is not responding because it hears the noise and not the pain. And my prayer is that everybody who listens to this podcast starts to listen in and tune in to the pain of others. It's hard, but it's necessary. It's how we empathize. It's how we connect as human beings. We connect to both the joys and the pains of others. And so be brave in allowing yourself to connect to the pain of others and then do something about that pain, much like you would do for your own pain, much like you would do for the pain of your child, of your loved one, of your pet. Step out and hear more than just the noise that's going around your neighborhood or on your TV or on your radio. Hear the pain that's behind that noise. Dr. Thomas, that's a beautiful quote to end on and a good challenge for all of us. I thank you so much for your time, for your work, and for your being. It has truly been an honor to get to speak with you today. This podcast is brought to you by CEW Plus at the University of Michigan in Ann Arbor as we work to serve our community during this unprecedented time of change. Resiliency is best demonstrated in times of challenges. Join CEW Plus Director Tiffany Mara as she talks to students, staff, faculty, and community members connected to the University of Michigan's Center for the Education of Women Plus in our podcast, Strength in the Midst of Change.